Six Guy, welcome to The Major Lift. It's been a while and I wanted to, um, I'm going to give you an opportunity to introduce yourself and, and what you're about in a second, but I was thinking that maybe uh, uh, with the high expectations of this podcast coming back from hiatus, that I would start off with um, really some in intellectually superior questions. So here's what I got. Here's the first question back. If you are what you eat, then what are you? Uh... <laughs> That's a very polarizing question because <laughs> there is something that I could say here that would be ridiculously inappropriate. So I'll go with the more appropriate one, which would be prosciutto. I guess that would make me like 70% prosciutto and like 20% chicken and the rest like eggs. I don't know. And the inappropriate question, just so we've got contrast. Well, there's, you know, the old running joke that if you are what you eat, then I'm a pussy. Oh, very good. I was hoping it was <laughs> going to be that. Yeah, we don't endorse eating cats on this channel, which is, I'm sure, exactly what you're alluding to. Of course. Uh, so, can I give you the opportunity to, to spruik yourself? Um, that sounds like, I guess that sounds a bit inappropriate when I say it with that inflection, but can, can you sort of introduce your, yeah, give yourself a bit of a public spruiking so people know some things sure. about you? Yeah, uh, I'm Zeke Sky. Uh, I'm a guitarist and a budding philosopher. I like to play piano as well. Um, I have a band and I mostly teach, play guitar, and I like to read. Uh, I went to college in the States, studied philosophy, uh, did lots of work years ago on like philosophy of mind and stuff like that before ultimately deciding I wanted to join a band. Joined a band, didn't really like playing cover music or other people's music, so I started composing a bunch of my own music. Some stuff worked out, some stuff didn't, and here I am. And what about the um, the humble brag of your career? What's, what's some things that have sort of come to the forefront of things that you wouldn't tell someone on a casual day-to-day -day thing, but things that kind of act as, a, as big milestones in your career so far? Um, there's a couple. I mean, uh, like performance. Performance-wise, I've definitely opened for some of my favorite bands. I got to open for King's X. That was the first show my band ever did. It was our album release party. Um, that was pretty cool because King's X was like one of my favorite bands growing up. Um, one time I went to a party at Dave Bryan's house. He is the piano player from Bon Jovi. That was really cool. Uh, that's not really a performance highlight, <laughs> but if you had seen me that night, you would understand why I was excited. Um <laughs> I don't know. I've gotten to travel. I've gotten to play with lots of musicians that I really, really love. Uh, I've gotten to play some large music festivals. Last summer, I played to the most people I'd ever played to. I played in front of like 8,000 people on one night. So that was really cool for me. It was the first time I'd ever done that. Um, yeah, those are some of them. It's kind of a, a hard thing in the in the current climate. And I think uh, that, that in a battle of figuring out what is important to share with the world as a you know sort of social media figure which it seems like you you're sort of surely becoming one of those at the moment uh, well i would not but see that's not the type of thing i mentioned to someone like you who's in a band i really really admire <laughs> you know like i definitely i definitely think there's something to social media cultivation and I think, unfortunately or fortunately, depending on which valence you view this through, everything is kind of going in this direction. If it's not Facebook in 20 years, it'll be Face Bible. I don't know what it'll be, but uh, it, we're not we're not going to see uh, the evisceration of influencers and digital influence anytime soon. But the only reason I don't really talk about that is because um, you know I think that it, it's not really the same as performance it's a, it's a different thing like there may be videos that you put out and that might draw your followership but how you maintain that um is somewhat of a mirage and it's very myopic and if you just go to like let's just go to like godwin's law let's look at you know the hot models on instagram this is something that was obviously going to succeed on any platform this was something that was just at the bottom of the instincts of all of the males who, you know, peruse the internet. Um, and what it presents to people, unfortunately, that causes a lot of 
distrust and cognitive dissonance is you see this one angle of a person's lifestyle that is so incredibly hard to duplicate even like in their person or in, you know, what they're able to do with their lives that it's almost like this has nothing to do with music sometimes, you know? That, that's really interesting. I want to add something to that, and I want to give people as much context about you as possible, because what kind of struck me was, first of all, the, the message that you sent me seemed, seemed earnest. It was earnest, and it was transparently earnest in that as well. And then as I was sort of doing my uh, millennial stalk, I was just like, shit, this dude's freaking, this, this guy's crazy jacked. What the fuck's going on here? And there's this whole, like, uh, personality that, that seems to sort of be in, in the public spotlight. I, I kind of went through and I'm like, shit, this guy's doing, like, bodybuilding type photos and things like that. And obviously there's there's that there's that part of the fitness industry and I could almost call it the aesthetic industry of like maintaining your, your public image and things like that. Do you ever feel at odds with the um, representation of, of your fitness and that sort of like humility and, and things that go alongside that in the public, public eye? It is, uh, it's, it's a really good question. Um, it's it's difficult to reconcile humility with what bodybuilding is in a sense because there are some goals that you can reach that seem to be otherworldly if you do things right. Um, I would say that it, it, there's it seems like you're kind of asking two questions. If the question is whether I can reconcile like my love for bodybuilding with my music career. Um, the answer is yes, it's been complicated and separating things has been hard. And I don't know if you know, and I'd be happy if you didn't know, because that would mean I did my job right. But I actually made a separate Instagram profile for just bodybuilding. Uh, I don't know, like six months ago. Right. You did it. Yeah, good. So that's uh, very good. So I don't try to I don't try to be super explicit on Instagram. But, um, you know, humility in bodybuilding is actually when you really think about it, it should be a relatively easy thing because in theory, you should always be getting stronger. So you're always weaker than you potentially could be. And it's kind of the same with guitar. I mean, uh, you can definitely get to a point where, you know, you're incredible and you can play anything, but there's always a new song to write, you know? Yeah. The, one of the big underpinnings of this this whole endeavor as a, as a podcaster and talking to people exactly like you, exactly like what you're describing is that I think that fundamental um, thing that ties those things together is, is pure discipline and the outcome of which of both is, is accomplishing goals and, and meeting those criteria. I just think it's so fascinating that it's, it's not often that people f are able to dedicate their time to two of those split avenues that do take a lot of preparation and time and discipline into something as as you know stringently disciplined as music practice and exercise to a lot of people you know exercise is something that could be limited to half an hour a day or the bare minimum and same with guitar practice but clearly where you've sort of been able to assert yourself in that is like fully committing to it which is why i kind of want to tie in some cultural questions which is this this for me is fascinating um it, australia and australians tend to have sort of a uh, nonchalant albeit somewhat sarcastic attitude towards almost anything that, that that requires you to sell yourself and after reading um susan cain's quiet i don't know if you've you've read that one it's a book about introverts um, it talks about America being sort of the home of the cult of personality. And I think that's so, so unbelievably fascinating because I think we could all do with a, with a healthy dose of, of self-confidence. So what I kind of want to find out from you is what, what did your early um, music or early fitness endeavors teach you and which one of those came first? Well, I think what you're saying, what you're pointing to is something that has been identified in a number of different ways. Um, and one of the ways I'm going to turn around on you and I'll maybe it'll be elucidating is there are psychologists out there and there are you know many doctors out there who say that ADHD is distinctly an American disease. 
because America is filled with all kinds of people who are descended from people who essentially got hot feet in other countries. So I shall preface with that. Um, I think that uh, for me in my early childhood, I definitely had experiences with music that were very powerful. But what I liked doing when I was a kid was like, I like jumping off of stuff and I would just like taking things to the most extreme that I could, you know, skateboarding. And I would just do a lot of risky behaviors. It, you know, typical um, male seeking, I guess you, you would see it as male seeking validation. But, uh, you know, as things kind of took shape a little bit, I became a wrestler in like sixth or seventh grade. And I got really good at that. I got to the point where I got a scholarship. And I loved guitar, and I was playing guitar every day, but, you know, wrestling got pretty demanding. And uh, I got to college, and I basically had to make a choice between guitar and wrestling, and I chose guitar. And so the exercise stuck with me, the attitude of the wrestler and, like, the rock climber I was, and, you know, very active, that stuck with me, and there was no way of getting rid of that. I just wasn't going to be a Division One scholastic wrestler and produce records and you know, play guitar all day. I thought I was, but it just wasn't possible. Um, so, you know, if you fast that forward a little bit to now, I've definitely developed a complex of confidence. And it's not that it, it's, it doesn't really reside in guitar. It resides in like my knowledge that when I apply myself in a certain direction, I can achieve what I want. If it was a degree in philosophy, like, you know, that was something that I struggled. It, I definitely struggled to get through college, but I wanted to learn as much as I possibly could. Um, and then, you know, I didn't even take piano really all that seriously until a couple years ago. And just sitting at a piano with not a lot of experience, it's extremely discouraging. It's less discouraging than guitar is because at least on piano, like even a child can play one note, right? There's going to, like, you can, there are some people who physically, besides an open string, they just can't press on the fret for maybe a week or two, maybe even longer than that. So the barrier to entry is lower. Um, but after I started, like, really playing piano, and I remember when I learned, do you know the Genesis tune, Firth of Fifth? Mm -hmm. Okay, so it's this crazy awesome piano intro, and I just had this one day where I sat down and I learned it, and I felt like I broke through this barrier of humility that I had been putting in front of myself for a really long time, which was that, like, you're a guitarist, you need to focus on guitar. So I don't do that anymore. Like, I don't say that I'm focusing on bodybuilding. I don't say that I'm focusing on guitar. I don't say that I'm focusing on reading. I just wake up every day and I try to do everything to the best of my ability. And if that all starts with the basic presumption of I can do it, more stuff gets done, it seems like. That's Okay, so many things. So, so many things. I'm doing hand gestures for the so many things. What about, so wrestling is not something that's common in Australia. That's, that's not a type of physical chess that we tend to play here. And I think I would like to ask a few questions about that. Uh, just, just to know what you learned from a discipline like that. Because that's very, it's very slow sort of punishment as far as i've seen and, and the little bits that i know about it what was it like uh trying to achieve in such a physical sport like that um i've often said that like wrestling was the greatest guitar teacher i ever had um because if you think about it like, that sounds like a crazy thing but if you think about what the sport of wrestling is, and it's it's kind of you, you probably know more about tennis um Tennis is a sport where it's it's usually one person versus another person. And there's there's doubles, but it's there's no team really in that sense. And not in the sense that there is in baseball or soccer. Wrestling is really you versus another person, and if you lose, it was your fault. And if you win, it was your, you know, your accomplishment. Um and that really turned me on. And it's the same thing that turns me on about being a guitarist and a composer and trying to get all my shit together. It's like everything being on me is a good thing. But wrestling teaches a certain type of masochism, maybe would be one of the ways of putting it. The training for wrestling is particularly grueling. Um, and if you go into like the top wrestling rooms, even in high schools in this country, you're going to see a level of training that's akin to like military 
we're going to be running for miles and miles. We're going to put backpacks on. We're going to be beating the hell out of each other for potentially an hour. Blood's not going to stop anything. Um, and the sign of a good wrestler is like that they're willing to take on that level of intensity and that they're like, you're not supposed to punch anyone in the face in wrestling. And I never did. But like when they get when you get to like the college level, if it's sort of it's like if it's like you sort of got punched and the guy didn't deck you, if it's like he kind of swiped you, they're not going to stop the match and they're not going to call that guy. Like this is supposed to be a fight with rules and learning that and learning the discipline around it definitely engendered something in guitar because like I'm not going to hurt myself with guitar ever. So there's definitely no excuse not to you know try to keep playing until I can play what I want to play. Um, but the other thing is that, you know, you starve yourself sometimes. And, uh, when you talk to people who don't really understand biochemistry and stuff, this sounds like this horrible, crazy thing. It sounds like this is like something that psychologically insane people would do to themselves. But the truth is that, uh, really it's the opposite. Really it's overeating and an over-reliance on food and sustenance that's corrupted the entire world. Um, and I didn't know that part of it when I was 16 or 17. I didn't really understand that there was spiritual fasting. All I knew is like, if I didn't eat for two days, I would feel strangely energetic, or I would feel maybe a little bit more in touch with my instincts and my ambitions. Um, so that was enormously valuable to learn at a young age. Yeah, and and just out of like pure curiosity, your sort of parental figures in that did they fully endorse what you were up to and and it really encourage you to do those things as well? My mom hated it in the beginning, and uh, most moms when they see their because you know I was a big kid, I was like 160 pounds and I was an eighth grader, so I would be wrestling with all these like 18 year old dudes who'd been doing it for a year, and I just got my ass kicked the first year. Um, but when it became like a little bit more clear that I was going to like get a scholarship, she was like, oh, lovely. And my dad has this, my dad has the same attitude that I have. He's like very much disciplined and rigorous and he likes, you know, he, do you know Wim Hof? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So he's like into all of this, like expose yourself to cold kind of stuff. And he's always been like this. So he kind of saw me like working my way up the ranks and he would just come to everything everything he would just drop work and just come to my matches sounds like a really good guy to to sort of support you while you're trying to figure out exactly what you're like as a person as well yeah no definitely i'm i'm very proud of my parents i had the privilege of having good ones yeah totally and uh, either of them musical yeah so my mom was actually a broadway choreographer and yeah my dad is a piano player and he released some records like in his 40s. They're children's jazz albums with science themes. One of the songs like E equals MC squared. Hmm. Got a good hmm. theory, Einstein declared. Yeah. Gonna call it relativity. Huh. Mass comes from energy. Like shit like oh, that. That's a and, banger. Uh, yeah, it was a banger. And it was, it was funny, like he put out this record and he had like some pretty famous jazz musicians play on it. And what you get on Amazon and all the comments is all these stoners show up. They're like, whoa, that equals MC squared. It's just like the loungiest jazz with science themes in it. <laughs> that's, that's pretty good. I mean, I, I, I can't imagine... I, I just from my own sort of understanding of what parents do, that, that blows my mind. You know, yeah. I've been reading a lot about, you know, sort of like parental nurture and stuff like that, because it's a it's another fascinating sort of field of inquiry into where you get your values from. That must yeah. you must find it quite easy to sort of laugh at yourself and with yourself, uh, in, in times oh, yeah. of full on desperation. Well, but that's part of a cult of personality too. Like if like like <laughs> like if Donald Trump thinks he's Achilles I hope he's having a laugh about it in his room. Like, I hope for him there is a moment, you know, because if he's not, then I really feel bad for him. But, I mean, if you can't have the humor about grandeur, if you can't, like, you know, I think of Kiss sometimes, too, where they've been doing this thing that has been so outlandishly and disproportionately over the top for so long. Like, you've got to imagine that 
they have some kind of sense of humor about it, right? And that they don't take themselves too seriously. You know, I haven't looked into it, but I'm going to guess, you know, they have some good giggles about it. Yeah, the whole Steel Panther shtick. Exactly. And that, that's right. like taking it to the end power. By the way, he's a great guitar player. It's like not funny. <laughs> <laughs> so is it is it <laughs> is it one of those things where if you see yourself and, and let's sort of go to um, fitness for a second. If you see yourself on the cusp of failure and you, you know that's about to happen, what is going through your mind? Uh, it depends. If it was something I had previously done, it could be bad, really bad. Uh, if it's like something new that I'm trying to do and it's a heavier weight or something, uh, it, it could range from like mild fear of danger to do this even if you get hurt. You know, um, but it's like, that's not, that's a difficult time for me to be comical because weight, like 50 pounds, I, I think Henry Rollins actually said this. He, he's, someone asked him what he liked more rock and roll or exercise. And he said he liked exercise more because 50 pounds was always going to be 50 pounds. And he'd always be dealing with something different in the music industry. Um, and there's poetry in that when you think about just even just the Newtonian mechanics of that just how weight is not really relative to your emotions. It's 9.81 meters per second squared, no matter what you do. Um, there's something that's like very equalizing about that. So now what's good about that is I haven't been keeping rigorous records because if I was keeping rigorous records, that would be way more of an issue because maybe 21 year old Zeke did something that 28 year old Zeke doesn't quite measure up to. Fully. Yeah, I've, I've kind of got that. My, my training's all over the place. So when I measure against that and I've got the sort of catalogs, when I open it, I'm going, is this really a fair comparison given all the external factors that are going on, whether right. it be nutrition or, or work life or stress life or whatever? I, I have to sort of ask the, the question, when, when it comes to staying objective about um, your workout plans and things like that, um, sorry, saying being subjective about it, wh what is your inclination um, as far as picking an exercise that, that suits you? How do you prefer to work out? Um, I, th I suppose I've been doing a lot of the same stuff for years and just trying to get better at it. Um, I choose compound exercises that utilize as much of the body as possible. And I always try to supplement almost every day with something besides the weight room, a hike, rock climbing, something like that, because I get the sense that there's something that's just not completely natural about weightlifting. And that doesn't make me not want to do weightlifting. It makes me just think that whatever I'm doing has to be constantly supplemented. Um, and it can't just be running because it's too much running. You just shouldn't do that much running. Um, and I don't even know if it's something like necessarily like skeletal or muscular i think maybe it's also psychological um where we go into this cycle of vanity that isn't always healthy i'm like not one of the the people who would say that vanity is never healthy i think vanity is actually something that people really get good energy out of and i think that when we talk about narcissists and we talk about narcissism what we have to remember is when we're talking about those character types, what we're looking at is people who actually at their core feel fundamentally inadequate and they use their narcissism as a way of kind of deflating um, the experience of others seeing their inadequacy. And I think that that's a very different thing from being what I would call excessively confident or cocky or arrogant. There are different categories of things. And I think, um, listen, if you get to a certain point in something that is very, very difficult, maybe remaining uh, super objective about your value as a human is less useful than you think it is. Because the truth is, like when you inspire other people or when you have the capacity to teach them or when, you know, ins inspiration is a big one, though. Um, you want to exert yourself as much as possible. You want to throw your weight around as much as you possibly can. Um, uh, it seems like a tangent now, but uh, it's a very 
relevant tangent to sort of the yeah. stuff that I, that I'm interested in at the moment, especially the psychology of of what you are nurtured to believe and what you have to cultivate within yourself, what you have to what you have to shatter in order to move through certain invisible boundaries. Well, I mean, th there's this other thing, which is like I was taught and a lot of us are taught to investigate things and to try to understand science, to try to understand logic. And if you look at a certain number of facts about what we know about humans, um, it makes a lot of logical sense for males to optimize physical performance. And it's not really just a question of appearance, but it is also. Um, we can definitely say that in a lot of species, males are show-offs. And there's a biological reason for it. There's an evolutionary reason for it. And I definitely, I perceive that I hid from wanting to embrace that reality for a long time. Like, I felt that that was very grotesque and inappropriate. And I didn't really have the character, the, you know, the cult of personality, as you described it. Uh, that wanted to justify that until I read about it more and tried to understand it more from like a scientific lens instead of just a purely ego lens. Now what I kind of understand is that there's really good natural reasons for why I should try to become the best guitar player I can be or why I should try to become the fittest I can be, you know? And to be ha and being happy about it, you know, is should actually just be an afterthought, you know? I have questions. I have so many questions. All right, let's do this. So <laughs> my, my first one is what are some of the steps in that journey that you undertook to, to remove the grotesqueness from that? That's such a, man, that's such a big field of inquiry of mine. Yeah. And it, it's, it's, um, I can tell from talking to you that, uh, and I can tell from talking to most people that the grotesqueness remains, especially, uh, with people who are, really, really excellent at things. And not to say that this is you, because I don't know you really all that well yet, but, uh, we go way you back. Know, what are I, you talking about? Uh, um, <laughs> you know, we, uh, we tend to, uh, the British Rick Wakeman's always saying this, actually Rick Wakeman says in this documentary about yes, that, uh, basically that, Brits are, you know, when he went over to America for the first time, you know, all these Americans are out there playing, you know, doing the crazy stuff. And he just wanted to play less. And he said that all of his British cohorts were exactly like that. And that uh, Americans love a big display of virtuosity. And, you know, British people were a little less inclined to that. And uh, I think part of what helped me, I can specifically point to some books, but actually like Sapiens was one of them. Mm. Sapiens got me to like the evolutionary psychology bit. Yeah. Sits right Sapiens. beside me. Such a good book. Sapiens definitely got me asking the right questions and the right questions led me to Robert Wright, who is an evolutionary psychologist and wrote this miserably amazing book called, um, the moral creature, um, or the moral animal, sorry. And this was a book, he is just the most unabashed explorer of the sexual culture of men and women and the sexual identity of men and women. And he spends the first half of the book basically laying out some fundamental guidelines for how to think about sex selection that are like they're things you know, but when they're laid out in such a empirical way, it's shocking to just hear someone who's incisive about writing about it, talk about what male men and, you know, uh, women want. Um, but then he spends like a quarter of the book going through Charles Darwin's life and explaining how he didn't really fit the mold of the character that he was sort of developing of the male which is, you know, a creature that's more tending towards promiscuity, tending to show off a little bit more, tending to want to intimidate others more, uh, tending to want to display strength more in whatever context, tending to want to manipulate resources in such a way that they can monopolize female partners. It's stuff that we don't really want to hear about because as a civilization, we've decided that gender and sex 
are separate things. And I, I wouldn't even necessarily say that they're not. I would say that exploring the history of that dichotomy is relevant to understanding where we are today. You know, I, I have a f very fun tour story I think you'll appreciate about the Britishness, because obviously a lot of our culture we inherit from the English massively. And yeah. we, we were uh, we were touring Europe in 2017, and we just played uh, a, sort of a daytime festival in in um, Jesus Dornsruh, uh, Nijmegen, in the Netherlands. It was a beautiful summer day. We were playing in front of this this cave, and there was just beautiful, gorgeous, you know, like dark green foliage everywhere. We were just strangers in a strange land. We freaking loved it, and there was a marathon going on. Uh, near the near the venue and we were watching people you know just running past having a beautiful day just having a great time and then there were public showers and people were of course naked it's europe and we had our primal britishness come through like our prudishness i don't know about these uh naked people you know like it, it came up and you, you catch it and you go fuck that's your Victorianness. Yeah, totally. And you feel it, and you're just like, God, uh, Europeans have got it right. They're just having a day, and we're sitting there like a bunch of you know colonial pieces of shit, just just being like, I don't know about that, but I want to change it. Damn it, no, I don't. That's honestly why. Why has this come up now? And and you realize just how deeply ingrained those those co cultural things are. For example, um, I think the the American marching band thing is is fascinating. We have nothing like that. Nothing like it. And that there Didn't is. Even know that. Yeah, yeah. There are so many fundamental schooling differences where more often than not, you, you are more or less told not to excel too much. Those are reserved for very. I mean, th this could sound like my own bias, but I can kind of see it for what it is now. Unless you're excelling in a very specific way, and usually, mind you, at a team sport. Almost, almost exclusively at a team sport. When I really think about it, you, you're better off just to simmer down. You know, maybe don't show off too much. And it's it's a cultural thing. That's why it, it is fascinating to to talk to you because it, I have a you know a deep admiration for people who can break those those cultural norms that I have and go ah because it is all bullshit. You know, you are just growing up in what rules are sort of gently imposed on you and then it, it it destroys your opportunity to really integrate and appreciate cultures at first it sort of makes you xenophobic first before you're open that's why i loved sapiens because it sort of opened up the idea that you can just be open to other people's full cultural journeys because w why not there's nothing to lose from being open to it no there's definitely not i mean now i mean i knew this thing about Rick Wakeman, but I did not know that this was the state of that this was your experience. And I haven't spoken to all that many people who imply this. So this is interesting for me, too, because, you know, the British made themselves masters of the world. What is it that makes them so not inclined towards show offiness? Is it a, a vision of egalitarianism that they need to they once needed to maintain a monarchy? What? That that is it's it's it seems very strange to me. It's it sometimes it almost seems insecure. But okay, but okay, so I can see that element of it. But why? Okay, so if there, so you don't. It, oh, so it's like the conscious process of trying to make sure that excessive talent doesn't show its face because it's too sexual or it's too. That, I mean, that's an interesting thing. We we tend to, as a culture here, be very quick to judge beautiful women for... I mean, of course, like we could go about the, the gender thing for ages, but it is disappointing to see. I, I have to admit with my partner, she is unbelievably, to me, just like the most beautiful creature ever. And then people are surprised when she's smart. It's like, well, duh, of course, people are that single-minded. But upon doing that, it is often that I notice people try to diminish that that part and i think maybe in america when she went to america for a little while people were really ready to talk to her and really ready to celebrate that i think that's why hollywood has so much so you know their claws so deep is a bunch of beautiful people saying stuff yeah i think americans maybe deep down are a bit more responsive to that whereas in australia we're just like shut up whatever you're just beautiful and you're just lucky like it's there's a bitterness that sort of come comes 
very deep underneath this. And I don't think it has much benefit. It definitely lets people work together um, at a lower, ooh, lower level sounds wrong, but at a more, let's not get ahead of, ahead of ourselves, guys. You know, I, and I hope someone is listening to this being like, you're fucking wrong because I, I would I would take that, but I can't help as sort of like a social watcher. And, and now that the more of the world that I've seen, and I'm, I can't wait to come over to the US because now I get to see a whole new culture in action. Like, you know, when I was in England, I just went, this is where we came from. Oh, yeah. You can't help but see it. It's so familiar mm-hmm. feeling, but everyone talks a bit funny, you know, it, and it's miserable, shitty weather. So where are the beaches, guys? What's wrong with you? But yeah, there, I think there is definitely something that underpins us to be dubious of people uh, succeeding or really, you know, like the way that you're talking about being able to reflect on yourself harshly, not harshly, but but sincerely, perhaps with, with an, a degree of honesty and, and humility. I think that's, it's just fascinating. I think, you know, the, that's the best part of what the American ideal can bring. Well, so there's this other, so I, I like everything you just said. Uh, one thing I'm going to mention to you is your your partner might have had this experience because there is an attitude of political correctness in this country also that has now permeated everything. It's very difficult to tell what the ambient level of um, sexism is in this country. Um, we've gotten to a point where the rhetoric that surrounds sex and gender has become so prohibitive in either direction that it's very difficult to un- to know most of the time when you have a conversation with someone new uh, what their true opinion is. Um, not to say that we're any less opinionated than any other people, but we've recently really swung in this direction, in this very, um, you know, gender oblivious direction. And I think that it totally serves some people because this presumption actually helps certain people who are really, really sexist and bad. They can, they, they can get away with it for a long time and just kind of smirk and grin underneath their teeth. But uh, I think what you're also speaking to is, you know, towards what, you know, the end of what you said is um, there's a, the cultural differences kind of reflect the, the shared history. And it's like, if that was where you're from, the U.S. is where you went. And things got a little wiggy here. And, uh, <laughs> That's a nice word but, what I, but what I was going to kind of say with that is there's this other edge of the sword, which is it's dangerous to me, to be honest. Like, I have to be careful about it, um, where we have um, a system that causes a crazy amount of wealth inequality. Um, the Not to say that you don't have that. We don't have other it places the same in the world. You. No way. You don't. You don't. And uh, we don't consider, you know, extreme wealth, or we do consider extreme wealth to be a symptom of the fact that our system is working. Um, and not to say that I don't necessarily have a problem with that. It's more that because the incentives are set up this way, what you get is a lot of people who become utterly miserable. When they wouldn't have been other, you know, utterly miserable, uh, without perceiving all of these things going on around them, it's hard, um, you know, to make a hundred thousand, even make to make a hundred thousand dollars a year and live in a town where people make a million dollars a year. You, people are never happy with uh, what they have. If you're the guy with a million dollars, you're mad at the guy who has ten million dollars, and the guy with ten million dollars is mad at the guy with a hundred million dollars, and. That is something that plays into how I think. It plays into how a lot of the people I know think. It's this ruthless, almost Rome-like situation. If you read about ancient Rome and you, you read about how the incentives were set up, the things that they taught, you know, kids were similar to this. Uh, you know, if, if you go back to that period, you actually have uh, generals are often people who hold political power or people who have big companies in Rome. These are people with these really bizarre incentives. These are people who stand to gain life, massive fortunes by killing those next 30,000 Gauls. I mean, Julius Caesar uh, 
you know, will have all manner of things attached to him. You know, he was heroic. He was brave. He ushered in, uh, you know, new you know, tax law and he raised the standard of living for everybody. But the truth is Caesar kills a million Gauls and he does so for money. He does so for land and he does so for power. And his civilization encourages this. And we still have this view today. And it makes you wonder, um, you know, what are people going to be saying in a thousand years about Hitler? Are they going to kind of say, well, he was on the far end of the spectrum of what people did then. But if you look at the whole thing, we're already doing this with Genghis Khan. There's a guy who killed millions and millions of people. But because of the carrots and sticks of his civilization, he... Uh, and even even of our own and like heavy metal culture, there's there's a band called Khan or Genghis Khan or something like that. Really like brutal, like genty type stuff. But we have this very great up until recently, we've had this very great image of this guy where it's obviously more complicated than that. I don't want to take away everything from him. But uh, that is kind of been encapsulated in the American experiment, I think. When it comes to the research of that, that you've done in your philosophy degree, did you have to break down some of your own um, biases to, to better help understand what you're like as a person and how you function in society? So I would say that it is impossible to break down your own biases. I would say that it is impossible to come into contact with objective reasoning through subjective experience might be a way of putting that. Um, I will say this. I had experiences with psychedelics that did this exact thing that really um, tore the veil of presupposition off a lot of the things that I thought. And they were definitely formative in allowing me to see past a lot of the American culture that I existed in. Studying philosophy allows you to more readily experience linguistically logic, just the raw nature of logic and its power as a device of um, breaking down scientific ideas, breaking down epistemological ideas. And the more that you can understand, the, the, the better you've done philosophy, the less you feel like you know in life. Um, which is kind of what you're speaking to. Yeah. Um, but it's not because biases get broken down necessarily. It's because new questions get asked. New territory gets explored that maybe you really had no idea existed. And maybe you, you know, something like the cave where, uh, do, do you know the allegory of the cave? The allegory of the cave is this old Socratic method for essentially showing people how ignorant they are in any situation. And this is a hard thing to explain to people in Greece 2,500 years ago. So here's how Socrates does it. He basically says, imagine that you were born in a cave and there's a fire behind you. And all you see for your entire life is the shadow of your body on the wall. And you have a whole life this way. You know, there's someone who brings you food. You've got three people next to you. You can't really turn and face each other all that much. But you see your shadow and you get to know your shadow very well. And then one day you get let out of the cave. What information gets processed in a situation like that? Are you happy you got out of the cave? That's question one to me. Um, and I think that philosophy is supposed to be this type of thing. It's supposed to allow you to take what is hopefully some type of um, subjective experience of the world and translate it into some objective knowledge. So what you're saying, because I, I'm only kind of, recently learning about this stuff in fact one of my guitar students gave me i don't know if you can see it a bunch of philosophy you know hardbound books to cool get started on it's something that's a very new interest of mine and something that is that, that came up was the the greek way of thinking about what's in front and what's behind i didn't realize and maybe it ties into what you're saying there that when they're talking about what's in front of them, they're talking about actively looking at the past as the only thing you can fully see and the future is mm -hmm. whatever's behind you. That kind of, that allows, very silent burp there for anyone curious about the silence. Uh, that kind of allows uh, foresight to develop 
from your past without a lot of judgment. If you if you sort of flip the tables and you're like, I'm always going towards the future and it makes you anxious, just like, I don't even know what's going on because truly you are just walking backwards in, into that idea. I think what's become really powerful for me and why I think at least a lot of the, the listeners at this point are probably quite captivated in some of these ideas and, and will really need to sit with them and especially the benefits of philosophy because damn, you know, it, I, I wouldn't have expected a field that at first felt arbitrary to me, you know, in my early 20s to, to be so fundamental in breaking down um, boundaries that I had with with the understanding of, of spirituality, for example. That's a good one. Um, understanding of society, another fantastic one, you know, how we live and where we're living it. I'm curious about, I, I'm yet to try proper psychedelics. What was, if, if, if you have the the ability to share that, what was your experience like? Um, there have been a number of them, um, and they've ranged from harrowing experiences, like really the type of thing that I would not wor- wish on the worst of my enemies, to experiences that in no uncertain terms proved to me that life was worth li- living, which is where the the interest generally, I think, should go in the scientific community now. Um, and they're seeing that now. They're powerful in treating depression. They're powerful in treating suicide. Um, but um, I think th- there's a number of lessons. But one of the things is something that Buddhists have been saying for a long time, um, which is that there is a seeing self and there is something behind the seer. And you'll hear people talk about psychedelics as if they were looking at a vantage point of themselves and watching the object, you know, you process some other thing. And that seems like it's just a strange, trippy thing. But when you think about it a little more closely, what you're actually doing is you're acknowledging that thought content is a combination of your pre-existing thoughts and environmental exposure. So... What it gives you is the pretext for maybe examining your thoughts in a way that is a little bit finer tuned. Now, this is like obvious to some people instinctively, but to just kind of analyze every thought that comes in and sort of say, hey, I'm, I'm thinking negative thoughts now. Where does that negative thought originate? And you go to the source of that thing. That process can be expedited and made quicker so that essentially you can get to the root more quickly of negative thoughts. Um, and the, the, the important thing to note about psychedelics and philosophy is you don't, psychedelics aren't interesting as much because of the state you enter. Like when people drink, they drink to get drunk. Psychedelics are interesting because of the traits they engender in people after it's over. So they've done studies now where they've administered psychedelics to like third, like very at the end of the rope cancer patients This is where they had to start experimenting. And something like 92% of them rated it as the most important experience in their life, uh, as important as watching a loved one die. Now, that speaks not to the valence of the experience, but it speaks to the magnitude of the experience. So, um, you know, I just want you to play with your mind for a moment here. Uh, Take the best thing you could possibly think of happening to you in this world. The absolute best thing. And think about that thing happening to you for 12 hours. But not just like in the physical sense of the best thing. Like the optical best. The philosophical best. Imagine that thing happening to you a couple times in your life. How does that change your perspective on whether or not life's worth living? For a lot of people, me included where I had felt like a lot of my experiences were terrestrial and they were driven in work and effort and uh, study. It was a total eye opener. And it, you know, obviously these things are dangerous and I don't recommend that anyone really, like I'm not here to tote about it. I think the only thing that qualifies someone to even be able to really talk about it is if you have the harrowing experience. Because if you don't have the harrowing experience, you don't know what you're talking about yet. And I'll tell you the harrowing experience. The harrowing experience was coming into contact 
undoubtedly with the knowledge that it was possible to, this is going to sound crazy, but it's the truth, uh, to experience uh, a millennia of human suffering that had existed before your consciousness existed, that it was possible to experience that somehow. The, the distinct proof that maybe hell exists is another way of thinking about it. But uh, another way of disposing of that is thinking that the dynamic nature of experience is such that the range of experience could be everything from the greatest possible pleasure to the worst possible agony. And we spend some amount of time in our lives at some point on those chart. Um, and if you talk to someone, it's interesting. If you say, listen, I can offer you an hour of the worst possible suffering you've ever had. And then right after, it's going to be two hours of the greatest possible pleasure. Most people are going to be like, no, like I'm not doing the worst possible suffering for an hour. You could offer them a day of the best possible pleasure. Probably still most of them aren't going to take it. A lifetime, then you got a religion. <laughs> then you got like the kind of thing that is really going to draw people in eventually. Um, so it's all about managing that spectrum and managing expectations. Um, I hope that answers the question. I don't think that is too far out of my my scope of appreciation. Uh, one of the previous episodes I did was with the uh, drummer from uh, Australian band called Dead Letter Circus. And he, he spoke at length about his DMT and ayahuasca experiences, um, which, yeah, the, the older I'm getting, the more I'm going, well, I wouldn't, I, I couldn't say no to it because it seems like a, a sort of a, a trap door of ignorance that I'm, I'm just cat-like enough to be curious about. You know, I, I guess even just my tiny little forays into it, I'm going, okay, I can see the benefit of having a terrible time. What's there to lose? It's it's strange, but that's, yeah, and you know, how cocky does that sound as far as not having well, experienced it yet? Ayahuasca and DMT, I've never done. Yeah. Um, and they are, because so let, let's look at our spectrum again. The risk profile is extreme for both of those substances. And uh, there's a reason why people build into stuff like that. Um, it's, it's interesting, though. Um, it is the adventurous. There, there's an adventurousness to all drug and alcohol and all, all of this stuff that enters our life and our bodies. Um, the interesting thing about it is when I started kind of maybe looking into psychedelics a little more, it made me quit the other things that I was doing or made me really, really like hold back because the knowledge that came from them was of such a sort that it, it was stuff that I'd been seeking through other means that I just didn't need to seek anymore. And uh, because I had this fundamental ass assumption that there was an adventurousness attached to drinking or, you know, anything else, um, I realized that the real adventure was in knowledge and in trying to learn and grasp the things that were around me. And if there was a process that could expedite that and psychedelics showed me in no uncertain terms that, you know, spending really very much of any time in a drunken stupor was just not, just not useful to anything, you know? Mm. Yeah, good for learning how your digestive system works. That's about it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so what I want to do is I, I want to be respectful of your time, and um, I want to I want to throw the ball your way to see if you had any questions to throw at me. I do. Let's go. Let's do it. Um, what do you think of fear? The more that I realize that I've spent my entire life avoiding uh, being any more afraid of things. I didn't kind of realize until maybe even the last couple of months that my main imperative for avoiding things is is a fear. The more that I'm open to the idea and and very much and and very usefully having a partner that ha shows none, you know, she's she's ridiculous. The the more that I'm open to the idea of it being a catalyst for the fastest possible improvement. Um the you know the whether it talks about, say, like weightlifting is a good one, being afraid of, of if I drop this, it could hurt. And you get that adrenaline that says, don't drop it then. <laughs> you know, that, that fear is useful. The social anxiety is an invisible fear. It doesn't exist. Um, that's one of those ones that I've wrestled with without knowing what it was. You know, it's a, it's a headiness. It's a fear of being known, 
by people for for who and what you really are. So I I define it as a a great catalyst for denial and also a great opportunity for change. Okay. Um, Do you perceive that there's a balance between, or how do you strike a balance between your want for, I I can tell you enjoy adventure, not in the same way I do, but I, I enjoy the kind of adventure you do too, but I can tell you really enjoy travel and you really enjoy being outside just like I do. I think you do a little bit more of it than I do. How do you manage your expectations of seeing things and doing great things with the fact that, you know, you're obviously in, in a great band and you make a lot of music. Uh, I, I can kind of tell that you really enjoy guitar. How do you balance those two things? Do you like to practice a lot? Do you practice a little? Do you miss guitar when you're away from it? I actually, to, to be fully candid about it, I, I handle it very poorly. Uh, it's a, it's a, it is truly a lifelong uh, process at this point. I mean, I guess everything is at this point. Uh, I handle it terribly. Uh, you know, a lot of stress and a, a lot of um, questioning and a lot of um, disappointment. If anything, I've realized that most of my uh, uh, impetus for change has come from being afraid of being found out as being shithouse at things. I don't know if it, do Americans say shithouse? A little bit. Okay, good. Sometimes. Good. Yeah, it's it's one of those things that the the more that I read and the more that I learn and the more that I take things like meditation very seriously, it it's the more that I start to realize. I mean, I just finished reading um the Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. Yeah. I haven't read it. I've heard great things. Fucking awesome. Uh, it was gifted to me for a little bit by um, Tobias of Glass Ocean. He just went, you'll love this. And he was right. The idea of what quality of mindset was I bringing to all the opportunities that, quite frankly, I'm very lucky to have participated in. Um, being not, not a founding member of Caligula's Horse is fascinating because, of course, I, I'm sort of standing on, on the shoulders of giants, you know, people who've written really fantastic things and to be a part of that process coming at it from a, a opportunity of like i better do this or otherwise people might find out that i'm a weak link or something is, is actually a terrible mindset um you know surprise surprise but what i've sort of you can't tell in the pictures man you can't That's tell yeah you it's all like. bullshit all bullshit <laughs> but i'm i'm glad that it's all bullshit because it takes like to, to shatter that and go ah oh, hold on a second that was all bullshit though and be like, okay, why, where is this perpetual sadness coming from? To identify yeah. that and to address it, you know, I'm very, I'm there at the moment. You know, like within days of everything going on, I'm, I'm, I've sort of just hit this massive boundary of why do I get like this when everything should be suggesting that everything's really good? And I started thinking about the Robert Persig idea of quality, the the what what makes something of high quality to you, what do you bring to to it in your attitude to make it a high quality experience? So I, I could I can remember being in places of of total euphoria whilst also being in a place of in, increasing judgment. And what happens is things start coming along for the ride like guitar. Because of course like playing to a to a festival, if you for a second are doubting yourself, the next time you play guitar you're doubting yourself. So I, for the longest time, I didn't really miss it um, if I wasn't around it. I would think conceptually about it because it got me out of that that cycle, which is lucky. You know, I, I, I didn't realize just how close I could get to a line of narcissism, you know, self-pity, like you were talking about before, like feeling constantly half full. It's insane. It's insane how um, subtle those lines are when you, you uh, criticize other people for their for their achievements you know it takes it takes a lot of boundary breaking to be like all right seriously though (laughs) maybe start living your life instead of you know being afraid of things it's it's a huge break um i I could talk about the nurture of those tendencies in my personality um but i'll probably that that might be a a later date thing because it's still so like mind fucking blowing to me um needless to say i'm capitalizing more so now on the arrival into my current 30-year-old body being like, hey, man, things are all right, and maybe just try to be present with them. It's a new skill if you're a habitually anxious person, which I fully am slash was that. 
I see. Uh, how about one or two more? Yeah, let's do it. So tell me about getting into Caligula's horse experience, discipline, learning songs, anything like that. Fully. Okay. So if you're familiar with the catalog, you'll know there's a lot of fiddly diddlies in there. And yes. yeah. And, and luckily, um, uh, I, I was in a band with Jim singer prior a band called arcane so i was really familiar with with everyone in caligula's horse i was really familiar with with the guys in general because i i do did their music videos that's what my my primary job is yeah okay i think i knew that actually yeah yeah it's um it's a really fun way to be in a community of talented people is you just kind of come along for the ride and you're filming stuff and you're trying to make them look good and feel good. And that's my interest of, of sort of mechanics in performance, like the biomechanics of performance, how people look when they play and stuff like that, making sure it's well meshed between members and things like that. You know, I'm really hyper aware of, of body language and posture. And Very stuff. difficult to rectify with the humility complex. Isn't it? <laughs> isn't it strange yeah yeah it's a it's a polarizing filter that's constantly on um but it's a great way to see to meet people and 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 get to know them quickly and in the best way possible is you know you detect someone's uncomfortable so it, on the caligula's horse thing when zach left um and i was i was quite tight with him and his other band opus of a machine um of course our bass player now dale was also from opus of a machine so it's a very incestuous scene in brisbane and when it came to learning the material, they were on tour with Opeth at the time in Australia. So no one really had time to tab anything or record anything. So I started learning it by ear, <laughs> which was hit and miss. Uh, you know, the, this sort of music is so tight. You really do need to have an extremely good ear, which I don't actually have. I've since developed it quite a lot. And you do have to be able to sit there for long periods of time and say, maybe I'm wrong about this whole part that I've transcribed. And you scribble it out and you start again. It it took me maybe a year to even get my guitar playing up to the point where I felt like I could actually start performing and not just playing on stage. So it was it was a long process of finding the weaknesses in my playing because I had the opportunity to compare it to people who who had strengths in those places which is, man, pretty lucky when you get to do that. You know, you get to measure yourself up against someone that you, you enjoy their catalog, you enjoy their talent, and go, all right, well, I'm lacking in these abilities. Can you fill me in? It, it, it sucks right as like an adult male to be like, maybe I suck, but can you maybe give me a hand here? And, and you know, surrounding yourself with people who know who know that music because it's them. It's their, it's their entire essence coming out at you and they understand it much more than you can ever learn the idiosyncrasies of, of just playing alone. I see. Okay. One well, final more. question. What, what's, what's next for you? What's next for you in the band? What are you seeing in the future for Adrian? Oof, I'm thinking when we can tour again, obviously coronavirus is starting to pop up again in Australia. So we're, we're being very careful. Um, Getting to the U.S. is huge for us. For an Australian band, that's the that's the top level for us. That's how we see uh, the music industry. So that's that's a massive goal for us. I mean, you're just there. You just have to go places. But when we come to America, we're just like, all right, guys, let's go. We did it. We made it to this place where artists are born, where Metallica came from. You know, like these places are really important to us to to get our feet into, to understand where, you know, like Steve Vai, you know, where he cultivated his sound and his persona, you get a taste of it. You know, playing one show in Atlanta going, oh, I get it. I, I didn't quite understand the fever of which people participate in music. Australia doesn't have that. So I think being able to bring a newfound confidence to an international audience would be sick. <laughs> that would be so good. And as as far as the band goes, we haven't even got to tour on our new album. It's freaking August. We we should have done US, and we should be. It having... was great, by the way. I Thank really you. enjoyed it. Thanks. Yeah, me too. I'm really enjoying it still as well. And and getting you know your your first vinyl because I didn't really play on in contact and sitting here holding Rise Radiant, going yes, yes, it exists. Well, the cover the cover justified oh, that vinyl. <laughs> so good, 
So good. Do you use the same artist for everything? I'm sorry, that's an extra question. But... I, I forgive you for the extra question. Uh, it's, yeah, <laughs> um, for 70%. Yeah, a guy called Chris Mangos. Um, man, if you want to see ball tripping art, you should check out some of his other stuff. He can do some fucking fantastic stuff. Right on. He's the right guy. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Well, let's let's do a a, a uh, what's like a temporary halt on this because I get the feeling that maybe we could revisit something like this in the future, and and if not, I'm sure when when I finally get to the US, we should actually hook up and maybe have a, a proper chat in person, and you can take me rock climbing because I'm so shit at it, but I love it. It sounds good, man. I hope you guys get here soon. I yeah, working on it. And and Zeke, if you wouldn't mind plugging your Instagrams right at the end so people can find you and enjoy your stuff. Sure. Uh Instagram.com slash Zeke Z E K E Sky S K Y official. Awesome. Go check out Zeke. Leave him lots of promiscuous comments. Tell him you love him and um and also <laughs> also uh <laughs> give him some some honest feedback on his philosophy from this chat. <laughs>